Okay. So we'll go ahead and get started. Um, our chapter, our verse today is going to be um, James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20 is what we're going to be looking at today. Um, I We are going to be finishing James today. These are the final two verses of, uh, of, the, of the book. Uh, this is our first book that we've gone together through um, as a church body. So uh, there's been some bumps along the way and maybe some uh, some repetitive stuff. Uh, I appreciate you guys um, having patience and grace and allowing me to learn how to do this and not beating me up uh, for it. Um, but when we first started, when we first started the book of James, um, we talked about how the main idea of the book is um, is a call to holy living. Um, there's been that throughout, throughout the chapters. Um, and it's also shown us the marks of a true faith and a false faith. Um, another way of looking at it is that it has been a series of tests. Um, and with each test, James either shows how the believer should be reacting to the test. And sometimes he shows what the unbeliever, how the unbeliever reacts to the test. And, um, uh, and sometimes he uses both in, in some of these uh, examples. Um, in the outline that I have written down here, um, there's 13 tests, uh, to be exact. Um, I've, I've brought them up into the introduction of pretty much every teaching, some of them um, as examples, but I'd like to do that one last time um, as we close the book out. Okay, so the, the first test um, of the book was the, is the test of perseverance and suffering, if you remember that. Uh, second is uh, blame and temptation, that we are to blame when we are carried away by our own temptation, not God. God is not to blame for that. Um, this third test is a response to scripture. Uh, he, James says, uh, do we receive the word implanted? Do, do we take that in and do we do it, not just hear it? Um, the fourth test is the test of impartiality, not being impartial to um, someone that comes into the congregation based on how they look. The fifth test is the test of righteous works. Do my works match the faith that I profess? That's the, the, the fifth test. The sixth test is the tongue. Um, are the words that I'm speaking consistent with what I claim to believe? Um, uh, the seventh test, humble wisdom. The eighth test, uh, worldly living. Do I put aside the things of the world? Test nine, dependence. Dependence upon God. Full dependence upon God. Test number 10, patient endurance. And then our last, what we, what we looked over last time I got up here and talked was the test of truthfulness. I'm sorry, the test of truthfulness and then the test of prayerfulness, where we explained how the church is to come together, um, come together for the sick, pray for each other, confess our sins to each other, these types of things. And the last test is the one that we're going to be looking at today, and it's the test of true faith, the test of true faith. Um, so today's teaching, the test of true faith, is a continuation of last week for the call to action, the call for the church to be the church, to meet the needs of the people in the church, and this is a continuation of that. And it's one that I hope um, is going to be edifying, and I pray that the Lord will use this um, uh, to spur you on to action uh, here on out, um, and for myself as well. So we'll read the text, and then um, we'll, we'll get into it. Uh, James chapter 5, verse 19. The bre my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way 
will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It's a beautiful passage uh, for many reasons that I hope we'll see today. But we can see right away that James is addressing straying brothers and turning back sinners. The first verse is specifically for the people that he's addressing. And then what is to happen as we turn back sinners as a whole? Um, It encompasses all sinners. Um, Last week we read in verses 13 through 15 that James is instructing the readers how to meet each other's needs uh, as a church, prayer for the sick. And then in verse 16, he tells them to confess their sins to one another and pray for each other because the prayers of a righteous can accomplish much, right? We all remember that. Now, the final instruction is to turn the brother who wanders or strays back, turn them back to the Lord. And anyone who does so will save the sinner's soul from death. Uh, This is a fitting end to the letter, if you think about it. James has been calling for this dispersed church to be the church and to turn those who stray back. But it's fitting because he's calling the church to do exactly what he's been doing with this letter. This letter that he has sent to the dispersed church has been one to call them away from where they're straying, the areas in where they're straying, and call them back to the Lord. And he does this by writing this epistle, the Holy Spirit obviously through him. Um, we went through all of the different tests here in the introduction, and we saw all of the different places that this church was straying, and he addresses each one of them, and he does it in two ways. He does it lovingly. Many times through this epistle, he has used the word, my brothers. He is assuming that these people are, his, in fact, his brothers, that these people are believers in Christ. He does it lovingly, and in many places, he does so firmly, um, harshly you know, depending on who you listen to, you know, um, and, and their, their reactions to this, to this, um, uh, epistle, but it is necessary sometimes, isn't it? It's necessary that, that, um, lovingly and firmly addressing the sin, um, of someone that we care about someone, uh, a brother or a sister, but he doesn't just address it. He also teaches them and guides them through the epistle back to the Lord. That's what's been happening throughout this entire letter. Um, But a few things that I want us to consider, okay, as we start to break down the text. He says, obviously, I I mentioned it before, but he uses my brothers, if any of you strays, the brethren representing Christians. Um, The word here for strays, and it may be wanders in some of your translations, but the Greek word for that word strays or wanders is the Greek word planeo. Okay, and as I looked through um, where this word planeo is used throughout the New Testament, um, the result, the results after the word planeo is used almost always is being addressed with uh, is almost always addressing apostasy. Okay, apostasy is when one either rejects or completely turns away from the faith. That is what an that's what apostasy is. One who does that is an apostate, if you've ever heard that word before. Um, but the words that are used to describe it, um, in, and I have one, two, three, four, five, I have six other places in scripture where this is used. Um, if you want the list of these, you can come up to me and I'll, I'll give it to you after the service. But, um, the three words are always used. A mixture of these three words are always used in every single one of the instances, deceived or deception, um, ignorance or misunderstanding. These are all the results of planeo or wandering or straying. 
Um, so the word strays or wanders that's being used here is, um, is uh, up to or including the very rejection of the faith that one is claimed to profess. Um, and it's happening as a result of either deception, false teaching, deception from the outside, self-deception, ignorance, or misunderstanding. That's how I use to, in, that's what I use to interpret um, this verse. And it's the, this idea of wandering or straying from the truth that I want to really unpack and I want to break down. Um, not just what it is, um, but also to the degrees of, of which it happens, of which straying takes place, and our responsibility when it happens. Um, I think that's going to be getting to the, to the heart of what this text is, is communicating here. Um, so first off, I'm sure we all know people who claim to be Christians or claim to have been Christians, but for one reason or another, left the faith. Um, it happens all the time. Most of the arguments that I listen to, um, the one who's agreeing or the one who's arguing against Christianity is the one who just, I couldn't be around those Christians, all the hypocrites anymore, or um, I didn't like what God's word said about this, or I started going to college and I started learning about science and about evolution and all of these other things. And, and, uh, and I just couldn't believe that anymore. Um, it's very common for these types of things to happen, but the chances are they fall under one of the categories that we had just brought up before. They were either deceived by an outside source. They were self-deceived. They thought that something was okay. And the Bible said that it wasn't okay. So they decided the Bible then must not be true. Um, or, uh, or they were tempted away by their own lusts, you know? And, and I think that any mixture of those things can happen when we're talking about, um, where somebody strays, but everybody starts with one of those four things that I mentioned when they start to stray, whether it's the true Christian, whether it's the Christian that just professes to be a Christian straying starts with one of these things. Um, and, um, if we'll flip back into James 1, actually, I think I'm getting out of order here. Hold off on that. Sorry, I got out of order. <laughs> we have many, many, many examples of where straying, of, of, uh, of, of apostles dealing with false teaching. The early church was saturated with dealing with false teaching. Um, the, in, in terms of the word of God, these are just a few uh, examples of where the apostles are dealing with false teaching. Philippians chapter three is about false, dealing with false teachers. The entire book of Galatians is dealing with false teachers. Colossians chapter two, false teachers. Second epistle of Peter, the whole thing is a dealing false teaching. First uh, John chapter two, <clears throat> dealing with uh, false teachers. All of Jude, the whole entire epistle of Jude is dealing with false teachers. And that's just a few. There are many, many, many other examples where false teaching is a thing that these people are having to combat. And even more in church history, we, uh, there are so many heresies that have been denounced by the church because Satan does not stop. I mean, there, there's the Gnosticism, Donatism, Arianism. I mean, those are just to name three. I, there's so many different variations of Gnosticism that the church has had to fight from the get-go, and they do so by the Word of God, right? The Word of God is the authority. But this is a 
common tactic of Satan. We are like sheep and we can be led astray. Um, given that certain things are, are um, happening in the mind of the, of the believer or not happening in the life of the believer, certainly things lend themselves to people being led astray. But this is something that happens. And even true Christians can be led astray uh, to a certain degree. Uh, we see that. We see that in the church today, in the various denominations, the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, it, it's it's splitting apart right down the middle. Um, and they're splitting over things like uh, um, women preaching and by critical race theory. That's a huge one that's splitting up that church. And some people are led astray. They, they, they believe these things to be true because it appeals to some to the way they feel. Um, we see this all the time, even in our day, and I believe it's the church's responsibility to fight against those types of things, just like our forefathers have. But my point is, is that even true Christians can be led astray to a certain degree. Um, but overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, it is by the person's own lust in which that they're led astray. Um, let's now we'll flip back into James one, James one verses 13 through 14. And this is where James is explaining how this happens. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be, be, be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. One of the reasons why people are led astray is because of their lust. What is the appeal? I was thinking about this. What is the appeal of Joel Osteen's church? I was listening to a, a sermon of his broken down and, and, and refuted uh, the other, this, just this last week. And I was sitting there thinking, like, what is so attractive about what he teaches? Because he doesn't teach anything. He really doesn't. He, he's a motivational speaker. He misuses scripture at every level, but he packs out what was formerly a sports arena and everybody in there is super thrilled at what he's saying. What is so attractive about that? And the truth is, is that he's tickling their ears. He's tickling their ears. This is all about you. It's, it's your world and everybody's just living in it. People don't want people who have a hard time hearing about what God's word actually says will then cling to someone who's saying what God's word doesn't say. If I think that God's main purpose for my life is prosperity, well, then I'm going to go listen to somebody who says that God is all about prosperity, right? It's so funny because I was, I was working with this woman a while back and we got in, she, I found out that she was a Christian and we started talking theology. We were working closely um, every day together. And um, I was telling her, she was telling me that she goes to a specific church here in town. And I said to her, um, so here's my problem with that church. I just came right out and said it. You know, they don't preach the full counsel of God. You don't hear about God's uh, wrath. You don't hear about holy living. All you hear about is, plant, is planting the seed, right? And getting the harvest and all of these other things about uh, uh, prosperity and, and health and all these things. And she said, well, I don't want to hear about God's wrath. I don't want to hear fire and brimstone. I want to hear about grace. That's what I want to hear about. I'm like, you, you can't separate God's grace from God's wrath. You can't separate God's, God's uh, uh, holiness from, from his, this is, these are parts of who he is. The full counsel of God needs to be preached, 
but you don't like hearing about that. So you go where your ears are tickled. You go where you're going to hear what you want to hear about God. That never comes by itself. If I go somewhere where I want to hear about how God is, is, is so graceful and how he loves everybody and how he just wants everybody to be happy and healthy and all these things, they're going to sneak in some heresy right along with that. Because when you go to a church like this, just because you want to hear all the things that you want to hear, that's where they start thinking that the Bible's not completely inerrant, right? That the Bible's a good guidance tool, but we don't believe that it's infallibly the word of God. So going to get your ears tickled in one area is ultimately going to lead heresy being led in through the back door where you're actually going to start discounting God's word as a whole. This is the subtlety, the subtlety that when one begins to stray, when one begins to wander from what the truth is, how they can be led into all different kinds of lies. But it usually starts with a lust that takes place in the heart of the person professing to believe, in some case, even the true believer. And there's biblical evidence of this. Um, if we can, I want everybody to turn to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1. First Timothy 1, verses 18 through 20. Verses 1, 18 through 20. Uh, on in Second Timothy. That would help if I got to the red book. 1, 18 through 20. 18 through 20. Um, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, uh, that you... That by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over Satan, so they will be taught not to blaspheme. Hymenaeus and Alexander were people that were loosely connected with Paul, maybe closely connected with Paul, but either way, Paul trusted these men at some point, and they were proven to have never been Christians. They, they were blaspheming the Lord. They double-crossed him. And now he's getting to the point now where he's handing them over to Satan. There's other examples as well. If you go to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, 15, we'll get another example of this. 2 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. It says, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. So we have two others that turned away from Paul, that abandoned him, um, and these were, uh, the two names that he gives are Phygelus and Hermogenes. A little bit later in this same book, it is, um, uh, 4-9, 2 Timothy 4-9. <clears throat> says, make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Then he names two other people that didn't desert him. But Demas left him for what? For his love of the world. 
It doesn't say exactly what that means. Um, it could have been for money. I know if, if we were looking at the book of James, he's given many reasons why people would, would uh, be turned away for the love of this world. But he abandoned Paul. Um, for the first verse that we read, as far as Hymenaeus and Alexander, <clears throat> they reject the faith and they are cast off by Paul for their apostasy. But there is a transit, there's a, a distinction that's made. Did we get the distinction between Hymenaeus and Alexander? And then he talks about Anisiphorus, the one who didn't abandon him. Okay. For the, for the sake of this sermon, we can see what happens when Christianity gets hard. We see the two that things get hard. Paul goes into prison and these two other people utterly abandon him, but not Anisiphorus. He comes and he ministers to the needs of Paul. Now, at this time, what's taking place here is um, in prison. It's not like prison today, and I'm sure all of you guys already, already know this, but back in those days, they didn't get three square meals and wreck time and all that other stuff. They were stuck in a cage, and they would not eat, and they would not drink, and they had no clothes, no, nothing to cover up with unless somebody from the outside brought it to them, brought it to the prisoner. So the prisoner is in there for preaching Christ, what is that going to say about the person who then brings the items to the person? Well, that's going to stick him in prison right next door and nobody's going to be able to bring anything. So there was risk with this. The other two abandoned him. They left him to die. And one who is faithful comes through and meets the needs of Paul. That's what we're seeing here. When Christianity gets hard, So we have a distinction between the, the true believer and the false believer. That leads me into wanting to talk about, about nominal Christianity. This idea of, of believing when things are hard, when it's not convenient to believe. Nominal Christianity is, well, I'm a Christian on the outside. I'm a Christian on Sundays. That's when I'm a Christian. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put Jesus on the, on the lapel of my jacket, and I'm going to wear him outside. And when I don't need him, I'm going to stick him back in my pocket, and I'm going to live like I want to live for the rest of the week, and I'm not even going to think about them. I'm not going to think about them. I'm not going to read about them. And I'm not going to talk about them. But when Sunday comes, I'll put on all my nice clothes, and I'll go, and I'll be the Christian for everybody to see on Sunday. That's easy. When times get hard, that person's not going to be there. When, when, when times get hard, when it's good, and Paul is out there, and he's preaching the gospel, and these guys are standing next to him or ministering or whatever it is they're doing on the side, they're fine with that. But as soon as it gets hard, they bail. They bail, but not in the Sephoris, okay? So this idea of nominal Christianity, it's everywhere, man. It is everywhere in this nation. 70% of people claim to be Christians. They claim to be Christians. Uh, so these people, the, the number, I can't remember what the percentage was that I read, but the amount of people that claim to be Christian that don't know the gospel, just the simple gospel of Jesus Christ is astonishing. It is a massive number. It's like 50% of the people that claim to be Christian cannot tell you what the gospel is coherently. Um, and that's, that's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. Um, so back to James. I'll get more into that later on. I'm starting to get ahead of myself. But back to James, whether we're talking about a false Christian or a true Christian it really doesn't matter for us in terms of what James is commanding the church to do. 
right? He says, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, if any one of you strays from the truth, we are to bring him back. Doesn't, he doesn't make the distinction between a true Christian or a false Christian. The responsibility is that we bring the straying brother back, whether it be somebody who we think is a Christian or not. Um, and the point that I want to present here is that the straying or the wandering, whether it's for the true Christian or the false Christian, the first step off the path is the same. The first, the first step to going into straying after something or, 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 or lusting after something, the first step is the same, whether it's for the person that's going to go all the way to apostasy or whether it's going to be for the, for the Christian who God is going to bring back. The first step to straying is exactly the same. And there's no question that even for some of us in this room, for some of us in this room, when we start to stray or when we start to wander, the first step is exactly the same as the person that's going to be apostate, right? We're all like sheep. We all can be led away by certain things. Um, but James is dealing with turning back the brother. And I think that turning back the brother, that phrase is where we find the answer to who is the true Christian or who is the false Christian. Does the brother come back? Does the brother or sister who is straying come back? That's how we know which they are, whether it's, it's somebody who is truly a believer or, or not a believer. But when we're going after the one who is straying, we don't know whether or not they're going to turn back. James, it doesn't say here, James doesn't say, you know, go and turn the person back and the person's going to turn back. It doesn't say that. It just says, go and turn him back. And he who turns a sinner, sorry, and he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death. But like in the verses that we read the previous time that I was up here, um, like praying for the sick and each other, it's our responsibility to try and to bring the brother back. If we all get together, if some, we find out someone comes down and is extremely sick, we can all come together. It's our responsibility as the church that we come and we consecrate this person and we set them aside in our prayers and we pray that the Lord would bring healing onto this person. Whether the Lord heals him or doesn't heal him, that's not part of our responsibility. Our responsibility is that we come together as the church to do this. It's the same call to action when turning a brother back. We don't know whether the person is going to come back. We don't know when or if the person comes back. We don't know when they're going to come back. And we don't know where they're going to come back to. We don't know if it's going to be to our church body or to somebody else's. We, we don't know. But the responsibility is ours to go out, notice when the brother is straying, when we do notice that the brother is straying, to go out and try to turn them back to the Lord. Um, if they are a true Christian, they will turn back. And I was thinking about this. What if the person that we notice is straying or the person that we say, oh, I don't want to go to that church. I want to go to this church. What if, what if the person that we go and we, we start petitioning to come back uh, to the faith, what if that person is coming to the faith for the first time? What if the person never came to the faith truly when they professed to, and that God would use the people of his church to actually be responsible for each other. I say, I talked about last week or two weeks ago when we were talking about covenanting, covenanting together, we have a responsibility for each other. If we actually go out and do this, how many people are going to be coming to Christ for the first time? Or how many people is God going to be using? Are we going to be using us as tools to be bringing these people back? That's, it's a beautiful idea 
but I think it's one that probably comes with a lot of pain when the, the people don't come back. But I'm going to hope to, to give you guys some, some, uh, some peace, uh, with that concept. Um, one of the things that we talked about last week was coming in as a church, praying for the sick, confessing our sins to one another. Um, when that happens and it's happening in the right way, according to scripture, there should be repentance. There should be repentance and appreciation for a brother. Um, whether if any of you noticed that I was straying, if you saw me doing something that was against the word of God, that was clearly against God's word. And you see that I'm straying and that I'm not where I should be. You start noticing a problem with me. Loving your neighbor should require, should require the brother to come and say, Hey, I'm, you know, what's, what's going on with you? Are you dealing with something? Is there, you know, you seem like you're getting off track a little bit, guiding the person back. If that happens for you, it, loving your neighbor would require me to actually go to you and say, brother, sister, what, like, what's wrong? I noticed that this is going on. There's small alcohol on your breath, whatever, whatever sign pops up that shows that a brother is starting to stray. The covenant members of the church that profess to be Christians is their responsibility to then go and care for the brother and try to turn the brother or sister back to Christ. This is what we should be doing as a church. But there's other things that we can be doing. There's other things that we can be doing as it, as it pertains to making sure that no one is led astray um, in our families, in our own families, and as individuals. We need to know our Bibles. We need to know our Bibles. You want to talk about people that are led astray? It comes from them not knowing what the Word of God says. It truly does. When someone says, hey, God is all about your prosperity, happiness, and health, anybody who's read through the book of Acts knows that that is a lie. That's a lie. It's not all about our prosperity, happiness, and health. It's about the glory of God. But someone's not going to know that unless they read the scriptures. But you can really manipulate somebody who doesn't know the scriptures. If you go to somebody and say, guys, homosexuality is totally fine. God has absolutely no problem with homosexuality at all. That's somebody, and somebody believes that, that's somebody who hasn't read their Bible or hasn't been taught their Bible from somebody who is a, a, um, a credible teacher. Um, but we need to do this individually as individuals and as families. We need to be reading the Bible together as a family. Dads and moms reading the Bibles to their kids, people reading the Bibles on their own, what does the word of God say about all things? You can find most anything that the word of God will address, whether explicitly or implicitly. We can get the character of God from the scriptures, from the law. We can understand what God's heart is in certain matters. It's sufficient for godly living. The Bible is sufficient for godly living. And we need to be doing that as a family. Um, one of the other things that we can do is we can come under faithful teaching um, at a solid church, which, you know, I, I pray that this will be, but we need to come under the teaching of, of, of people that know the word of God and that can guide our souls that can pastor our souls and actually care about us. We can come in where we're surrounded by church brothers and sisters that know us well enough to where we actually start to stray. They'll kind of pick up on that. 
That's difficult. You don't really get that in a whole lot of churches. Not any church that I've ever been to in my in my whole life has anybody ever noticed when I was, you know, I don't even think people noticed like when I showed up without, I mean, I would show up with alcohol in my breath, you know, pretty much every time I went to church before that I was saved. And I don't think anybody ever noticed. And if they did, they would just talk about it with their friends or whatever. And nobody ever, uh, you know, addressed me with, with anything. So, you know, I, th I think that, that coming into actually being a member of a church, so important to protecting the individual from going astray. Um, and a couple other things that we can do individually is um, spend time in prayer, spend time in prayer with the Lord um, before you read your Bibles, after you read your Bibles, we need to be in one on one communion with God. We have that right through the Holy Spirit. We have that privilege through the Holy Spirit where we can approach his throne whenever we need to be praying to the Lord. Um, James, uh, previous to this says, draw near to God, draw near to God and he will draw near to us. Pray with the right motives, pray for the right things, pray the way that we're supposed to pray, come to him, draw near to him and he will draw near to us. These are all ways that we can be protected from false teaching. But ultimately, ultimately, we've talked about wandering, we've talked about straying and all the different things that we can do. But ultimately, the course of the sheep depends on the shepherd. It is ultimately in the hands of God where the course of the sheep lie. Um, he has prescribed in his word church discipline. We have things that we can do uh, in the church when, we, when there is unrepentant sin. There is a method to which God has given us, which we address sin in the church. Sometimes he uses that to bring uh, brothers or sisters that are straying back. Um, sometimes he uses a brother or sister to go one-on-one -on -one outside of the church, and he'll use just questioning somebody's sin can sometimes get them to start thinking about it and, you know, the conviction starts to take place and they'll come back. Uh, and other times the Lord will give people over to their sin. He will give them over to it and he will allow them to be crushed by the weight of their sin. And then they'll return um, based on the promptings of the Lord. But either way, the Lord is the one who guides the course of the sheep, whether we're being used as tools to assist in that or not, the Lord is the one who keeps his sheep. Um, but what about the ones that don't come back? the ones that don't come back. If you go to first John, chapter two, verse 19. This is one that's probably familiar to you all. But 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would, have they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. The people that don't come back are the people that never really were. They never really were. When you hear out there in the world, and I kids especially, you will hear this out in the world. I used to be a Christian, but I don't believe anymore. And it will be some of the hardest rebellion, warring against God in every single action that they do, like every other lost person on the planet. They will claim, I just don't believe that anymore because of X, Y, and Z. No, they don't believe it anymore because they were not of us. 
They never were of us. They were led astray by their own lusts. They were led astray by deception, by, by being deceived. They never were of us. That's not an acceptable answer biblically. I just don't believe anymore because it doesn't make enough sense. That's not biblical. You left because you were never one of his sheep. But that's even more sad. It really is. It's really a sad thought when you, when you step back and you think about that. What are, what is a Christian? What is a Christian, but not a lost animal saved by the grace of God? We really are. And I, and I think this is so beautifully put in, in first Peter two twenty five. it says, for you were continually, this is before knowing Christ, you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. We were brought back by the good shepherd, the guardian of our souls. We're exact. That's exactly what we are. We, we just, the Lord had mercy. The Lord had mercy on us or otherwise we would still be straying. We would still be straying. And finally, verse 20 says for anyone that verse 20 in the book of James, sorry. Verse 20. And let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. How many among us in our sphere of influence are God's sheep? Think about your spheres of influence and people that don't believe. How many of them are God's sheep? They just haven't found the shepherd yet. Turn them back. Turn them back. This can apply to those who are in the church. And we should be applying this to people that are in the church that we see straying. But there are people everywhere around us that may be God's sheep. We don't know that. We don't know that. And it's, it's, it's so easy. And it's one of the knocks against uh, fallible men that claim to be Calvinists. And I am, I am a fallible man and I do claim to be Calvinist, but it's so easy philosophically to sit here and say and count on the sovereignty of God. And I am in no way saying that we should not <laughs> uh, rely on the sovereignty of God in any way. Am I saying that? But what I am saying is just, oh, I don't need to go to those who are sinners and are in rebellion against God. And I don't need to say anything to them because God is sovereign. And if that person's his sheep, then by all means, God is going to bring that person to himself. And I can just watch Judge Judy or whatever. That, that is an abuse of the concept of God's sovereignty and the philosophy that goes along with that. That is wrong to do that. At what point is mankind, those who have been saved by Christ, going to put down their philosophy and actually start doing what the Bible tells us to do, and that is to go out into all the world and telling people about the gospel? This is a call to action. When Jesus gives that final call to action, that's what he's doing. It's a command. It is not something that we can, oh, so well, some faithful Christian's going to eventually stop by their path. No, today's the day of salvation. Today, right now, is the day of salvation. I get it. It's a little uncomfortable to share the gospel with those that are around us. But we are called to do so. We are called to do so. Now, it can be in a way that, you know, the Lord will deal with you and he will deal with your conscience on how to, to, to encroach on the people around you. But we are called to turn sinners back. God knows who's his, who his sheep are. We don't. 
Calvinism, that, that whole part of God's sovereignty is great. God is sovereign. God knows. Yes, he does, but I don't. What do I know? I know that I'm commanded by his word to do, to do and to go. That's what I know. But it says that if God, if, if God turns them back to the shepherd, that it will save their soul, their souls will be saved, and it will cover over a multitude of sins. And when we bring the person back, it'll be covered, the multitude of their sins will be covered. That word multitude is really, really interesting. When I started looking where that's used, I came to Revelation 7, when it talks about the great multitude that are before the throne. It's a group of people that cannot be numbered. It's innumerable. We don't, it's going to be so many people that you're not even going to be able to count the amount of people that are going to be standing before the throne and here in Revelation 7. And in James, it says that a multitude of sins, the same word, multitude of sins is going to be covered. That is a number of sins that cannot be numbered will be covered. And we know as Christians that it is by a grace that is infinite. And it happens from a savior whose might to save is equally infinite. This is what I want us to do. This is what I want us to do. I want us to think about someone. Think about somebody who is the most hard-hearted, most rebellious, God-hating person that you know. I can, I already know mine off the top of my head. That, that says, I don't believe in the Lord and I also hate the Lord that I don't believe in is basically what they say through their words. Think about the most hardened person that you know. And for the next month, pray for him. Just get down, and I mean intercess, intercessory prayer. Get on your knees and make that a focal point of, of, of your prayers. And just sit there and pray for that person and ask God to soften that person's heart. Because how easy is it for a Christian to sit here and think, well, that person, no, that person... He hates God too much. That person can never be saved. This person is so far gone. They're so this, they're so that, that I'm, I'm going to cast them off. I'm going to give no, no, I, no, no thoughts to, 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 it's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. That's a lack of faith. That is a lack of faith in God. God is, Jesus is mighty to save and his grace is infinite. If he could break you down and bring you to himself, if he could break me down and bring him to himself, do I really think that this person that I've, I've compiled all of these thoughts for or against, do I really believe that God is incapable of saving that person? Turn him back. Turn him to the Lord. Give him the gospel. God is the one who saves. All I do is bring him the gospel. Bring him the gospel. Do you know the gospel? If someone were to come up and ask you, What's the gospel of Jesus Christ? Could you actually give an answer for that? Now, I'm not going to call anybody out. And, and if you can or if you can't, it's not the point. The point is, is how can you be saved by something that you don't know? If you're a Christian today, how are you going to take the gospel out to these hard-hearted, rebellious people that we once were if you were saved, if you're claiming to be saved by something that you don't know? That's a profound thought. We should know the gospel. Get into the Bible. Do you know the Lord? Do you know what he's done? But they can't get the good news without the bad news. 
today in the church, it's all about, well, here, I'm going to go share the gospel. Hey, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. That's the gospel. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel at all. But it's so easy. You can put that on a bumper sticker. You can't put the whole gospel. You can't put the gospel of Jesus Christ on the back of your car. It's going to cover the whole. I mean, I guess you could do like one of the wraps or whatever where you could see out of it. But that's going to be a lot of writing on there for people to read at a stop sign. Right. So Jesus loves you is a lot easier. Only problem is it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. There is good news. The gospel is good news. And it's good news because there's bad news. And the bad news is, is that all of us like sheep have gone astray, that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, that none seek after him, that none do righteous, right? We know that inherently human beings are lawbreakers. That's why the good news is so good. Because he will change the sinner from a God hater into someone who loves God. It's the beauty of the gospel, right? We need to know that. We need to know the gospel, but there's something that happens. There's something that happens in heaven. And it's, it's, these are from the words of Jesus and it's through his parables. And we're going to close with this, but I want you in your Bibles to flip to Luke, Luke chapter 15. And this is where we're going to end. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus gives three parables and all of these parables go together. The first one is uh, starting at verse one is the parable of the lost sheep. Then we get the parable of the lost coin. And then we get the parable of the prodigal son. And I'm just going to look at a few verses here. Verse 15, chapter, chapter 15, verse six. This is, happens after the one has gone out, after the man has gone out and he's found his sheep. He says, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This can be applied to both the brother who is in the church that is going astray. This can also apply to the one who has never known God, who has never known God, but is his sheep that just needs to hear the gospel. Okay. In the second parable, the parable of the lost coin, the woman who goes searching for these coins, for this coin, she finally, she finally finds it in, in verse in the middle of verse nine. It says, rejoice with me for I have found the coin, which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then finally, in the parable of the lost son, verse 22, says, but the father said to his slaves, this is after he looked out on the horizon and sees from a long way off that his son was returning. But the father says to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. When a Christian, when a sinner repents, repents and turns to the Lord, there is a feast in heaven. 
There is rejoicing in heaven when one of his sheep is found and brought into the fold. And make no mistake, the Lord will not lose his sheep. It cannot happen that all that the Father gives to him will come to him. And how many will he lose? Nothing. He loses absolutely nothing, but he will raise them up on the last day. If you are a Christian and you start to wander, there may be correction. There may be correction, whether it's from the church, there may be correction, whether it's from God directly in your own life. To what degree? I don't know. I can't say he's the judge. But what I will say is, is that if you are a sheep, you can rest assured in your salvation because we have a good shepherd that always keeps his sheep. If we stray, he's good. He brings us back. He doesn't say that he's the mediocre shepherd. It doesn't say that he's the sometimes he gets a little lazy and will let you get it way out. No, he's the good shepherd. He always brings them back. Always, always, always. But we are commanded to go and to find the other lost sheep. And we have the privilege of God using us to do so. So we need to take care of, this is the main point of the, of the verses that we looked at today. We need to be loving with each other, compassionate, and with God's word in hand, turn a brother who's straying back. And with the same God's word in hand, we need to be going out to the world where sinners whose only hope is Christ. There is no other hope. And we can't sit around and wait for them to, oh, well, maybe somebody will give them the gospel. No, give them the gospel now. Today is the day of salvation. Turn to Christ and have your sins forgiven. We need to do that. So let's pray for each other. Let's be responsible for each other. Let's keep an eye out on each other. And let's all walk through this life with Christ as our Lord, as our actual Lord, not just the little pin right here, but as actually as our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you, God, for this Lord's Day. We, I pray, God, that, that, that this has been edifying to um, the people here, Lord. I pray, God, that it's been acceptable in your sight, that our worship has been acceptable in your sight. Uh, we thank you, God, for the constant grace. I pray, Lord, for, for these people that are here, Lord, that you would continue, God, to shepherd them in only the way that you can, that we would be we would take the teachings out of James um, and that we would apply them to our lives, that we would live holy in your sight and that we would be acceptable to you. Um, we thank you, God. We thank you for the great blessing uh, where we can say that, that we've gone through a book in the Bible together um, as a body. We, you are so good and the blessings that you give are so amazing. We, we thank you. We love you, God, and we need you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.